0: well good morning Uh, my name is Andrew Wong and I'm a part of the teaching team here at Vineyard so we have a couple of pastors that teach pretty frequently and then some other lay folk like myself that teach on occasion Um, and I apologize for in advance I'll be coughing a lot I have this like lingering cough I won't get you sick but it'll just annoy you so that's why I'm using this mic instead of the uh, the share mic and so I'll turn away and cough Let me go ahead and pray. I had kind of a, I was speeding over here for Jesus this morning. I left my house at like 1020 to get over here, so um, I'm a little unsettled, so I'm going to pray again. Uh, Father, thank you for um, waking us up this morning um, and bringing us here a chance, God, um, not just to gather together and not to um, do what a lot of us do each week, but, God, to experience you, um, to meet you, and to be transformed by you. And, God, we thank you that you have high expectations, not high standards, um, not exacting standards, but high expectations, high hopes, God, for what you want to do in us today God, what you want to transform in us today. And God, I I just know that this message isn't ready. I know I'm a little unsettled, God. Maybe we're not ready um, for what it is you want to say. And so, God, would you come by your spirit? God, would you bring peace into this place? God, would you bring openness into us, God, so that we are willing to listen, so that we're willing to have ears to hear? And God, would you, um, would, yeah, would you meet us here? God, would this, um, this not be for naught, God, but would you use this time in our lives? We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so for those of you who are visiting, um, or maybe you just forgot, so I don't know how that'd be possible, because for three months or something like that, we've been going through Galatians. Um, and today I'll continue through that. Um, and we're going to be, we're getting towards the end of it. Um, you can pull up our first slide there. And I've entitled this message, Two Freedoms, and it's just a couple of verses, really. You can go on to the next slide. You guys can read along with me silently. Um, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by another. <clears throat> and throughout our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we've heard the radical invitation that Jesus makes through the gospel. Come as you are and enter a relationship with God. Join his family, no matter who you are or where you're from or what cultural identity you have. There are no barriers to keep some people out of the family. So come, come if you're caught in dead religion and self-righteousness, come know the living God. If you're lost and broken and messed up, come as you are and join God's family. In Jesus, God's long-awaited invitation is made perfectly clear. There is a new life and a new family for all who want to join it. Paul has spent the bulk of his letter um, challenging the counterthinking. This story, the counterthinking to the story that um, Jesus has made a new family and that all are welcome. He spent all of chapters three and four arguing that the Galatians fully belonged to God's family because they had shared in the death and resurrection of Jesus and had received the Holy Spirit. Paul warned that by changing their culture and needlessly following following the religious laws of Israel, that the Galatians would only obscure the truth. Um, That Jesus' death and resurrection had welcomed them into God's family and they were fully accepted. Now, Paul's letter turns um, its focus to a different sort of question and a really important one. Um, How are the Galatians to live uh, in this newfound freedom? Without a list of laws to regulate and manage their lives, how are they to live in this world? Undoubtedly, this question and the fear of it is probably what led some of these um, Jewish Christians to travel to Galatia to tell the, um, the Galatians that they actually did need to culturally change, that they actually did have to adopt um, the religious laws of Israel, because freedom is kind of a scary thing. What would they do with it? Um, there's a progression through this text uh, that Paul uses to guide the Galatians, Um, And I think what you'll find is that this isn't a very proof-texty passage. Um, That's to say that there's not a a lot of very specific detail that we can just pick out that I think Paul's instead offering some guidance, some leading, not some easy answers. Um, And so we're going to try and follow that same guidance through the complexity of the question. And um, it comes through kind of three movements. You can go to the next slide. Yeah, you can click, I think, two more times. So there are these three movements that I see in the text, and the first is freedom, and Paul explains the nature of the Galatians' freedom in Christ, the the nature of their new life. Then there's the flesh and love for others. Um, He goes on to explain that with new freedom comes uh, new choices that need to be made. And then, um, lastly, the fulfillment of the law. Paul shows that these choices, um, either fulfill the law, or they lead to destruction. So these are the, kind of the three movements we'll take in the passage. And the first one is uh, is freedom. Paul reminds the Galatian believers of a marvelous truce, truth in the first verse here. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Uh, the NIV translates it this way. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You were called to be free. Before the Galatians had known the true God revealed in Jesus, they were enslaved uh, to spiritual forces and powers who were by their very nature not gods. Paul does not explain in detail what this enslavement looked like or what it entailed, but it's likely that the Galatians, because they were Greeks and pagan, um, were captive in some sort of uh, system of idolatry. So they worshipped... They worshipped false gods who were by very nature um, never going to love them or provide for them or desire a relationship with them. When the Galatians began to follow the religious laws of Israel, they had enslaved themselves again to a system of relating to God that was incomplete and obscured who God was. And so Paul's encouragement to them is actually twofold. Neither the old idolatry which enslaved you, nor these laws which give an incomplete picture of who God is, will do. In Jesus, you can know the fullness of God. This is what you were made for, and this is what you have been invited to. This is your true identity being returned to you. For, this, uh, for the Galatians, this blessing of freedom was simply the opportunity to live in relationship with the true God, uh, becoming the people they were made to be. But how do we understand this freedom in our own context? Because right? um, for many of us, um, In the United States, we probably don't have such overt examples of unfreedom, of slavery, like um, in Idol. Western culture is built upon notions of freedom, which is part of why I think this passage is so curious for us. Indeed, many would say that the chief virtue and good of Western culture is the protection and pursuit of something called freedom. And of all the heirs of Western culture, um, we in the United States seem particularly infatuated with freedom. In our national lore, we have dubbed ourselves the land of the free. Um, And the histories we learned in grade school explain that the first Europeans who colonized this place did so in search of freedom. And that we only became a nation after throwing off the rule of a tyrannical king. This is our national story. This is our narrative. But the West in general, and the United States in particular, have a sad history of how how notions of freedom have played out. Much of the world has experienced our freedom in violence, exploitation, and careless consumption. Um, That's sort of the sad reality. And so we have to ask, is that freedom? Since the country's founding, we've stuck with the buzz about freedom, especially in how products are marketed, uh, curiously. You can go to the next slide there. might have to go to another one there. There you go. Um, Soda's promise to keep us free from thirst. Designers create entire lines, uh, entire sort of lifestyles, ideas based upon the word freedom. And I even have a credit card called the Freedom Card. Um, it offers points for spending money so that I can get more money to presumably spend more money buying more things, and all of this is, is freedom. That's at least how it's built, right? Um, then there are the popular definitions of freedom. The ability to do what I want as long as, as it doesn't hurt someone else. Um, being who I want to be. Defying the expectations of others to become who I truly am. I don't say those definitions in a strictly negative way, actually. After all, it is essential that in the right time and in the right way, um, we do resolve to be honest with who we are, right? With who God has made us to be. Um, as opposed to who our parents or bosses or teachers want us to be. Um, Part of being human in the deep way Jesus revealed, actually, I think, um, is defying convention, when the Father has created us and called us to do something different than what's expected of us. Um, So freedom is, is inherent to all of these important decisions. But so often the definitions and ideas we have of freedom and the way they work themselves out in our personal lives or in the world around us Um, are fixated on our own needs and interests and concerns at the ignorance or the expense of others. Is this freedom? Is this freedom? In this self-centered way of thinking of freedom, a sad irony is actually hidden. And I think we've all experienced it. That through our quest to live our own ideal life, to be self-made people, we end up so thoroughly unfree. Eugene Peterson described the state of things this way, and he wrote this in the 90s. So, some of you will actually remember some of what he talks about, but still, just listen and see if you can relate. He says, The world had seen a succession of political and social revolutions that had featured the word freedom. Especially in the Western world, but hardly confined there, aspirations to freedom were very strong. But when I looked at the people I was living with as pastor, Fairly affluent, well-educated, somewhat knowledgeable about the Christian faith, I realized how unfree they were. They were buying expensive security systems to protect their possessions from burglary. They were overcome with anxieties in the face of rising inflation. They were pessimistic about the prospects for justice and peace in a world bristling with sophisticated weapons systems and nuclear devices. They were living huddled, worried, defensive lives. I relate so personally to that description, actually. Um, Not all of the details are the same. Things have changed, right? Um, I guess the US beat Japan in the late 80s, early 90s in that way, so now it's China and India. Inflation, I guess, isn't as bad, so things look a little differently. Um, Not all the details are the same, but I have to admit that I live this huddled, worried, defensive life so much of the time. And this is not freedom. This can't be freedom. Um, for much of the last four months, I started a new job in late August, and uh, or August, and for much of the last four months, I felt trapped in this job. I don't know if anyone else can identify with that. I don't particularly enjoy the line of work that I'm in, and sometimes when I think about waking up and going into work and facing all of the responsibilities and obligations and problems that I didn't have a, a solution for yesterday, that I don't know if I'm going to have a solution for today, it's just... It's enough to keep you wanting to stay in bed. Um, It's when I face that that I know that I'm not free. When I talk with uh, family members, I was Skyping with my sister. My wife and I were Skyping with my sister a few weeks ago. When I talk with family members and I see, um, it wasn't just my sister, but just in general, and I see broken things in their lives that that they're not ready to look at yet, that they're not ready to interact with yet. or when our interactions draw out those old, ugly things in me, right, where I'm not just the one who's there to help them, but actually it draws out these old relationships in me, Um, I realize that I'm not free. When I look at my own spiritual life and recognize the fear, the hopelessness, and the distraction that at times is much more present than a love for the Father, a likeness of the Son, or the power of the Holy Spirit, um, I realize I'm not free. Paul calls this unfreeness slavery, and in the harsh reality of it in my life, I get scared. I have to be honest and say sometimes when I come face to face with this slavery, I get scared, because I so badly do not want this to be all there is for me, right? We all have these areas of slavery and bondage in our life, and I I think it looks different for everybody, right? We're all in different places. We grew up in different families, different circumstances, but we all have these areas of bondage. And when we take an honest look at them, I think we all have to wonder if there's something more than this. So, you know, there are kind of ways to relate to the bondage. We can kind of throw ourselves headlong into it. Um, (coughs) If freedom really is recreation, we can seek that. If freedom really is being a self-made person, we can do that. We can throw ourselves headlong into those things. That's one response to this slavery. We can run the race. But is there a better way to live? There has to be. For me, this longing for something more is stoked when I read the Gospels and see Jesus. Jesus is fully God, but he is just as fully man. And I think that's something that we miss out on. That's, that has always been the church's position on the person of Christ. Um, and still, after thousands of years, we're, scholars are still researching it and writing about it, but from the early church, there was always this idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's not that there weren't dissenters, it wasn't that there wasn't disagreements, but this idea has always existed, this reality. And, uh, and as fully man, he lives the deepest and most beautiful life across the Gospels. He isn't floating around on clouds, whispering spiritual mysteries, and downplaying how hard it is to live in a broken world. Um, if you actually, interestingly enough, if you ever read a Gnostic gospel, what we call a Gnostic gospel, so something that didn't make itself into the canon, that's kind of what Jesus is like. He's kind of like a guru, um, and he floats around, and he's just, he, he doesn't sit down and break bread with people. He's not very real to people, interestingly enough. But Jesus isn't like that. Instead, in his incarnation, he draws near to us. Born a helpless baby, like each of us, he has parents and siblings who try to love him but don't understand him and fall short. He learns a trade, he makes a living with his hands that I imagine was boring sometimes um, and hard. He makes friends, he experiences the loss of some of his friends. He experiences the tension and fear of living in an occupied country, the many needs of all the broken people around him. And during all of this life, Jesus lives completely free. He lived in total relationship with the Father and Holy Spirit and was able to join the Father's work in the world. So when we look at Jesus, we actually see the most complete picture of what it means to be free as a human being, (coughs) to live in relationship with God and to be a part of what God is doing in the world, to have the freedom to do this. And so just as it was for the Galatians, so it is for us. We share in the death and resurrection and new life of Jesus, and so we too can live the free life that he had, that he has. A life not removed from real circumstances and a broken world, but empowered to live freely within it. Now Paul has established the significance of the Galatians' freedom. Um, He qualifies that this freedom is a gift with tremendous purpose. He says, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You can go to the next slide. And so now this brings us to this section on the flesh and love for others. With all of the excitement and blessing that Paul offers the Galatians, um, he makes it clear that freedom is merely the raw material of life, and it's not an end in and of itself. Concrete, bricks, drywall, and wood can make a fine house if a builder knows how to use them, and he incorporates them responsibly. But the same concrete, bricks, drywall, and wood can be used disastrously. If improperly used, they can create a dangerous structure, unstable, and poised to harm whoever inhabits it in the long term. The same raw material can have a different result. And so Paul calls the Galatians not to turn their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but to instead with love serve one another. And this word speaks to the new responsibility that comes with freedom. Freedom is responsibility. That freedom is not an easy thing once received that figures itself out. Instead, it has real potential for harm, and it has real potential for healing. The paradox of freedom within the family of God is that to use it only for our own ends is enslaving to us, causing passions and desires, the flesh, um, that are destructive to gain more power and traction in our lives until the sad irony that in search of freedom and trying to liberate ourselves, we've just put ourselves under more burden and bondage. Instead, as we learn to exercise our freedom by mutually offering ourselves in servitude and love, All people within the family of God are supported and cared for. Paul's vision for freedom flourishes in love for others. That freedom is inherently communal, it's inherently responsible, and it's not personal. Freedom can't be expressed personally. It has to be expressed in relation to God and others. Without that, it's nothing. Quite oppositely, our culture understands freedom as a personal expression that ideally will lead to our own life as we want it, no matter the needs of others. In this view, the needs of others are actually seen as liabilities or threats to our freedom. Um, They're threats to our lives becoming what we wish for them. This vision of freedom is realized in freedom from others. So there's this sense of of freedom that leads to a love for others, a servitude for others, and then the world's vision that freedom is realized as freedom from others. Um, I was reading a a sermon by uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, and he quoted Bob Dylan who said, you got to serve someone, it might be God, it might be the devil, but you got to serve someone. And that's the reality of freedom, is that freedom isn't in and of itself anything, but it leads to this decision. What will I use this supreme ability to make choice in my life for? Um, the paradox of Christian freedom was evident in the life of Henry Nouwen. Um, some of you maybe have read Nowen. Uh, He was a Catholic priest and a scholar, and he taught at top universities around the world. Brilliant man. Um, However, after years of teaching and writing books, um, and all of this was really significant work, mind you, um, he realized that this work was distracting him from actually knowing God. Um, And he felt like his life was headed towards burnout and depression. Um, A friend told him, go and live among the poor in spirit, and they will heal you. And this friend happened to be a founder of something called Latch, uh, which are communities of uh, the mentally handicapped and their caregivers around the world. And um, so Henry Nowen said, okay. And so Henry moved into a community for the mentally handicapped and their caregivers and became their priest. In doing so, he gave up the prestige of his prior life. Um, his community members weren't impressed by his positions at Yale or Harvard. Um, most of them hadn't gone to school before. And none of them had read his books, because many of them couldn't read. But in making himself available to serve in love, Nouwen began what he called his new life, where he could freely experience love without any need for accomplishments. Because in the world, Nouwen used his freedom um, to get what he needed, to get acclaim, to get acceptance. And he was impressive. But in this place, where it didn't matter at all, he received it freely. Now, and made dear friends with his community members and became free in ways he never could have had to use his freedom to serve himself. <clears throat> and so that brings us to the next section. Lastly, Paul explains that these choices will either lead to destruction or to the law being fulfilled. And, and I think this, is, this should give us pause because it seems like for the whole letter, Paul has been saying, you don't need the law, don't put yourself under the law, The law isn't what it's cracked up to be. Don't worry about it. So why is this happening? Um, He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This seems like a strange statement given Paul's prior emphasis on not needing the law. Um, Is he reinstating parts of the law? To understand what Paul is calling the Galatians to, we actually have to explore what the law was. Um, and just to say law conjures up all sorts of ideas in our minds. If you belong to like the Protestant tradition, the evangelical tradition, um, maybe you don't belong to a church tradition, but law, it conjures up all these ideas. Um, as an heir of the Protestant tra- uh, Reformation, many evangelicals view the law as old and restrictive, which might as well make it the exact opposite of what we consider freedom. Especially in the popular sense. Freedom is spontaneous, it's individual. um, And so a way of life handed down from generation to generation um, is seen as backwards, right? That that's not freedom. That could never be freedom. But the true God has given the law to his people Israel. But the true God had given the law to his people Israel after they had actually been taken out of slavery, after they had been liberated from Egypt. And it had guided, reformed, and challenged their life as a community um, until the time of Jesus. The prophets of Israel had always been concerned with the community's relationship um, to the true God as expressed by walking in these laws or not. Jesus himself was always referring to the law and the prophets, um, which is what we call the Old Testament, actually. Actually, if you look closely at what Jesus does and says, um, many times it's a fresh embodiment of some teaching in the law, um, some story or psalm. Um, when Jesus actually feeds the 5,000 in Mark. Um, read Psalm 23 and read that story. In many ways, Jesus is actually acting out Psalm 23, and that's constantly what he's doing throughout the Gospels, is he's living out the law. The law was central to the common life of Israel and therefore to Jesus because it was one of the ways that God revealed who he was and what he was like. Right? God is invisible. Right? We hear that over and over again. So how is God known? How is God revealed? Well, one of the ways was through law. When the law spoke exhaustively about loving the foreigner and the alien among you, Israel saw that the heart of the true God was for the vulnerable and for the landless. It was for the stranger, that God cared about these people. When the law declared that, the, that fields and vineyards shouldn't be completely harvested from, but that there should be a remnant left behind for the poor to gather what they need, Israel saw that God cared about the poor and that he expected his people to be responsible and compassionate to others. When the law mandated that the land lay fallow and unplanted every seventh year, Israel saw that God cared for his creation and he wanted his people to live lightly upon it. Um, that, that Israel was to live with the land and not to just take from it. Because of the nature of the law, God did not simply describe himself to Israel for their theological benefit. Instead, he invited them as a people to become like he was. This is what it means to be the people of God. This is the heart of that law, not that rules are followed, but that a community lives in this broken world in a creative way inspired by God's heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fullness of all the law's teaching, because God's heart is love for all people. And while all that is quite beautiful um, and very poetic, anyone who has read portions of the Old Testament um, knows that Israel continually failed to obey the law. They know that it didn't play out very well. (coughs) And so there are all these laws about the jubilee, about land being returned to original owners so that nobody can become super rich and nobody can be impoverished. There are laws um, about taking care of aliens and the poor, But throughout all of the prophets, constantly we're told that Israel is abusing people. They're hurting each other. They're rejecting each other. They're worshiping false gods. So even though the law is good, it's clear that Israel didn't follow it. The scriptures are a seemingly endless chain of idolatry, abuse, forgetting God, the destructive effects of such a life, and then repentance, and then soon after, um, more disobedience that leads to more destruction in the life of the community. This is why Paul is so adamant that the Galatians can't find their hope in following the law. Throughout the letter, Paul makes it clear that Israel, and especially the religious leaders, had tried to live rightly by the law to know God and be in a right relationship with him, but it just had not worked. It hadn't worked for their forefathers, it hadn't worked for generations, and it hadn't worked for Paul. Because while there was much goodness in the law and it showed aspects of God's character, there was no power in it to transform. There was no power in it to transform. And so I I think I want to set up that sort of distinction, is that there are good rules to follow that would benefit your life and benefit others, but it doesn't have the ability to change us to be people that actually embody these things or naturally this way. Um, It just becomes prescriptions. It becomes these ways that we try and remedy things, but we're just still stuck in the same place, only restrained from maybe the really bad stuff. So it gets us somewhere, but not far. Um. And so, there was no power in it to transform people into the lovers of the poor, stewards of the earth, and those who would remember God. And throughout all the Old Testament, we see that Israel repeats this process. But then, enter Jesus. Paul tells us that he was born under law, a human in a broken world, only he was not like us, incapable of being the good in the world that the law envisioned. In his life, The justice, mercy, hope, and truth of the law is incarnate. It is embodied. The law, through a specific culture and time, gave Israel a glimpse at who God was. To a specific people and place, they got an idea of who God was. But in Jesus, for all time and all people, God is revealed. To look at Jesus is to see God. To hear Jesus is to hear the very words of God, and to be with Jesus is to be with God. And so, from Jesus' death and resurrection, has come a new power and freedom for all people. And now we can become the people of God in the world, not simply by affiliation, but by transformation. Once again, not by affiliation not by belonging to a specific people, not by looking a certain way, having a certain language, which is really at the heart of Galatians, but by becoming something new, by becoming a new creation. Paul explains that just as freedom leads to a choice about how to live life in our world, for ourselves or for others, so too do our choices lead to two different lives. If we choose to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for our own broken desires, we will end up enslaved all over again. But beyond the personal consequences, we will live in a consumptive way that harms and dehumanizes others. Right? He, he says this, and it's really it's kind of a disturbing image. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by, another, by one another. But if you bite and devour one another, take care you are not consumed by one another. The language of hunger and consumption And this verse is frightening but accurate of what a freedom for the flesh looks like. When we use our freedom to seek out our own ends and make our own way in the world, we are bound to lack, we're bound to go hungry, and we're bound to resort to taking whatever we can to meet our needs. Paul's prior encouragement to serve one another in love is contrasted by this image of biting and devouring one another until there's just nothing left. But this is not the free life. This is not what Jesus' death and resurrection have given to us. Because we were made to be free and our King Jesus has died and rose again in freedom, let us live as free people, serving one another in love. And that's really the call of this passage. In just a few verses, Paul does not give um, a prescription of how to live your life to the T. Right? That's kind of what the law offered people. The law offered people the ability to know what to wear, what to eat, how to relate to people, um, how to plant your field. There was a lot there, and it led people's lives. And for a time and a place, it served a purpose, it had a point, and it revealed God. But that's not the true way to relate to God. Now in Jesus, we relate to God, and it's not a list of rules. That's why in three verses, Paul has said that this is the law fulfilled live freely in God, love one another. And this is the call of us as Christians. Um, This is the call of us to to not put bondages back on ourselves, to not use freedom as something oppressive, something that will harm us or harm others, but instead to use freedom as something that will put us in servitude, like Jesus did for us. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up, (coughs) and they can begin to play their closing song I actually didn't have really a conclusion written. I got to the last page and realized didn't really have a conclusion written. Um, but I think there's a lot in that for us. You know, As I said in the beginning, um, throughout the study, the study of Paul's letter in Galatians, we've heard the radical invitation that the gospel of Jesus makes to all people. And so all people includes everyone in this room. Come as you are and enter a relationship with God, not marked by law or obligation or rule. Come and enter real freedom that leads you to service for others. Join his family no matter who you are, where you're from, or what cultural identity you have. There are no barriers to keep some people out of God's family. There are no barriers to keep you from the fullness of God. So maybe you're a part of God's family already, but you have very little experience of God. I think I'm there sometimes but there's no barrier keeping you from the fullness of God. Come, if you're caught in dead religion and self-righteousness, come, know the living God. If you're lost and broken and messed up, come as you are and joins God, join God's family. In Jesus, God's long-awaited invitation to all of us is made clear. There is a new life and a new family for all of us, if you'll just have it. Um, we're going to have prayer ministers along this wall. And kind of along this side, um, if anything in what was said today is pulling on your heart, um, go and seek prayer. Um, Go receive that support and that care. Um, Don't leave here today without responding to God. You have freedom. You have freedom to respond to God in this place. That's what God has given you, is this opportunity. He has revealed himself in Jesus. He's drawn near to us in Jesus. He's poured out his spirit, and now he's asking us to receive. So as um, we do this worship, um, you can receive prayer ministry. Um, at the end of it, if, you're, um, if you don't need to receive prayer ministry or anything like that, you can pick your kids up from the nursery, um, and we'll be dismissed after this last song.